and welcome to the third episode of Abernethy Archives. This is the podcast of the Museum of Abernethy where we talk to people and each other about old stuff to do with the Museum of Abernethy. We also talk a bit about the problems faced by we museums and how we are trying to address them. Things like funding, volunteers, outreach and accessing museums resources like us need. I'm Irene Halliburton and I'm joined today by Anna. Uh, that's Big Anna. Hello. The other trustee. Um, and our producer, Katie Gordon. Hello. You might have noticed that today we have a new theme tune. So as part of Scotland's Stories Initiative in 2022, we obtained some funding from MGS and Visit Scotland to run some events collecting new stories of our area. A visitor who had lived at Aiton House brought us some sheet music. It was written for the house by a visitor. They'd never heard it played. So we passed it to a local lad and fiddle player, Gordon Ewan. And what you heard is Gordon and his brother David on accordion playing the Strathspey written by Dr Bruce Thompson called Aiton House. It's a really exciting piece of music um, for us to find and something I think we'll be using as a theme for some projects uh, moving forward. So this is Saturday morning that we are recording and on Saturday mornings we have a little bit of a work party going on and today's been really busy and mm. um, sometimes it's nice and quiet but today's been really busy. So Anna, who we Anna, who we had on last time when we were talking about um, objects and museums has been in and Anna, what Anna's been doing recently is going through some of our clothing collections. Um, we have quite a lot of uh, clothing that's come from a local house and from the factory in the village that used to make nightwear clothes. So Anna has been going through our clothing collection, she's been doing condition checks and really discovering some fantastic um, Victorian outfits. Lots of 90s, lots and lots, lots of 90s. Of 90s. Um, but we also have some really nice um, Victorian clothes. I think if you keep an eye on our social media, you'll be able to see some photographs of bodices and skirts. Beautiful, beautiful things. Um, also this morning we had in my PhD supervisor, Dr. Alan R. MacDonald. Um, who was looking at some of our 17th century documents. Um, Alan's much better at reading the writing. Um, <laughs> much better at reading the writing in some of the documents than us. Uh, I, I can do the 18th century handwriting, but Alan was much mm. better on the 17th century stuff. Uh, we've had in Hilda Clough, Yes, which was lovely to see Hilda, I've not seen her for ages. It was. So Hilda, I, I mentioned the clothing factory, clothes, um, and that's C-L-O-W, not C-L-O-T-H-E-S. Clothes, clothes. Yeah. I did you ever think about that? I did not, no. Yeah. But I will now. That's... I've always thought about that. Um, uh, Hilda was in this morning, um, and now we've got Katie. Yes. Now we've got Katie in. And Kath. Uh, oh, Volunteer Cathy does our garden yes. so beautifully in the summer months. Yeah, so do you want to tell us what Cath was in talking about today, Anna? 
many things. Many things. Many, many things. Um, really just having a chat about maybe putting together some workshops for next season to tie in with some of our exhibits and some of the events that we're thinking about having um, and just figuring out the logistics and what we could do, what would be feasible, because it is a small space. Um, and that, that's the balance we have to face, isn't it? We desperately want to get more people in, yeah. but if we have too many at the same time, it just gets a bit chaotic and it does. we need to be. As a community museum, mm. we are really keen to involve, to, to make the museum much more of a hub, yeah, I think, for definitely. the community. So to for people to see this as a place to come and while this morning was really busy, it was really good that we're starting to get different people coming in, offering to help us, um, doing bits and pieces of work in the museum at their own, with their own ideas. You mm -hmm. know, all of the ideas don't have to come from the trustees. Um, if people have ideas that of things that they can run in, in conjunction with the museum, Fabulous. That's what we, we want. We desperately, we want, I keep saying desperately, I don't mean desperately, we, we really do want to hear from them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if, if you have some suggestions or things you'd like to see, yeah. get in touch. And I think the other thing is as well is that you see a face light up when you say, okay, we can do come that. with your ideas. Yeah. Or, or, or we say, we'll let you make the decision as long as it fits within X, Y, Z parameters you can decide and their face lights up because that's their chance to not just follow orders but to take it yeah. and make it their that's own their chance to shine isn't it and yeah. to impart their passion for yeah. their their subject everyone everyone in the museum is a volunteer mm. and you know there is no one or two people who can do everything and again that comes back to it being a community museum mm. so people bring their expertise they bring their passion and we we all work around you know work in the museum um that's what it, makes it work i think isn't it everyone's passionate about a different era of history or yes. a different particular topic um be that fashion or you know my own niche interests <laughs> <laughs> everyone has their own thing um, or agriculture yeah 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 I'm, I'm interested in agriculture and church history and so one of the things um so alan my phd supervisor has never been in the museum before um so i was kind of just showing him what a, a treasure trove um the museum really is and we've got lots of little incredibly well designed corners in the museum there are all sorts of things hiding in and one of the things that um, I was showing them this morning is our very own um, portable toilet. Uh, yes, I'm fascinated and we'll be having a closer look at it later. But <laughs> so we, we have stashed away a little commode, um, a little wooden box with a little pottery commode in it. I think it's come from one of the big houses in the village. As far as I'm aware, it's never been on display. Um, but this, you know, there must be a story that we can tell using the toilet and using Anna's delvings into Delving Victorian sewage and in... before <laughs> pre-Victorian like, sewage. Whose butt was somewhere? <laughs> well, how did it link in? Why did they need to have a commode rather than just a yes. toilet as we would know it? Yeah, um, and, or an outhouse or whatever. These yeah. are the stories that we can start to develop. 
from their collections, from our research, about what went on in Abernethy. And that's what makes it so exciting. We've still got so many stories still I think we, we also have to mention our, our dismay last week with Liana when we decided to, we were looking at all these beautiful Victorian bodices and decided to measure the waist measurement on them. Yes. And then we thought, let's compare that to our own waist oh, measurements. Oh, God. Because they can't be that different. Oh, no, no, no. Listeners, they can. Yeah. Very... Very different. Did you really thoroughly depressed thoroughly with your depressed. lips sewn shut? Yeah. You could but say. But then I even brought shortbread in this morning, so uh, yeah, all yeah, good I intentions. I brought shortbread in this morning, so you know they obviously didn't have shortbread. Bear in mind, though, Victorian women were heavily corseted. Yeah. Yes. So while it might be depressing that they had twenty-two inch waists. They, their organs were wrecked. Their yeah. bodies were physically wrecked. Oh yeah, I'm, they, I'm not ambitious to have a waist no. that narrow because where would you put the case? constantly. Interestingly, I remember mm. in primary school, eons ago, we did like a, a Victorian section mm-hmm. of our history lessons. I was in about primary six and I can't remember if it was from Perth Museum or from a different museum a couple of histori- people who worked there came along. I think they were kind of um, what would now be classed as community engagement yeah. or like education officers. So I think Barbara is the current one in the mm-hmm. museum. And, but they brought out uh, um, a couple of Victorian outf- parts of outfits. It wasn't the whole thing, but they brought out the big hooped bone skirt and underskirt and all the rest of it. And they brought out the corset, but we weren't allowed to put it on. No. I mean, even at 10 years old, we were still slightly too big, yeah. you know. But we got to put on, and it was funny because they gave us a few things just to show us the sheer weight yeah. that these women were walking about with as they couldn't breathe properly because yeah. they were restricted and how physically, how wide the skirts <laughs> were. And it was it was nuts how much yeah, they actually wore. No wonder you know, Victorian women were prone to fainting fits because mm-hmm. they probably just couldn't, couldn't breathe. breathe. That's why they used to have the hankies with the smell insults was to keep them awake yes. when they were mm. corseted and they couldn't... Well, I said this to you last week. Somewhere in my house, there's a belt that belonged to my great-grandma who had an 18-inch waist. Jeez. Yeah. So I wouldn't go round one of my arms now. Yeah. <laughs> it's not going round my thigh. No, it's not, definitely not going round my thigh. No. Yeah. It's just it's you know, we, we talk a lot about modern beauty standards being unattainable. Mm. But that kind of takes the biscuit. I mean That's torturous. Yeah, that's yeah. torturous. That's like as you said, by the time these days, by the time you're what, eleven or twelve years old, your naturally your waist measurement is going to be much bigger than that. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even we had a, a skirt out this morning, um and it's Beautiful, very heavily beaded around the bottom, some lovely embroidery on it. It had pockets. Yeah. Awesome. But it was really, really heavy. I mean is I that think 20s maybe, if it's got the beadwork. No, and... oh, it's a Victorian It is Victorian. Yeah, but yeah. like well, I can Kate, it, but very keen to see our costume. It's not a costume, it was what people wore. Yeah. Um, we'll, once we finished, we'll, we'll let Katie see As soon as I walked in the door today, that's partly yeah, I why I did not bring the mascot with me. Yes. 
because Miho would not let me have no. peace to no, look at the no, clothes. No, that's a good idea, he, he would actually. probably try to eat it, which would not, yeah. not go down well. But that skirt also was quite heavily quilted. Mm-hmm. So chances are it was maybe a winter skirt as well. Um, yeah, so we've got some lovely, lovely things that we're discovering just in the course of going through the collection and doing um, condition checks and just discovering so many new things that we can we can put out yeah and if i do go for the masters then they might become very relevant for me yeah so kate so anna and i have um I, I, it's all anna's fault of course it is. <laughs> so yeah. i'm just here to be blamed so anna is dr anna yes um i did a masters in scottish history a couple of years ago and Anna persuaded me that doing a PhD was a really good idea. Yeah, fantastic. It took her a while, so now I'm doing a PhD. So Katie has now decided that if Anna and I can do it... <laughs> That's not what I said. Those crazy old bats <laughs> at her time of life. <laughs> she's got no excuse, really. Then she's really interested in doing a Master's mm-hmm. as well. Um, and if we can use our collections... Exactly. To help Katie, mm. then this is what museum collections are all about. Yeah, it's to support research into the they're past and about research. They're about preserving things. They're mm-hmm. not about stashing things away in a storeroom. No, um, they're there for to be there for the consumed. Well, at yes. the end of the day, I mean, those those beautiful dresses we're talking about at the time they were made. They weren't made to just be held in a cupboard or a wardrobe. They were made to be used. I mean, something like a quilted beaded dress. I mean, the quilting probably has an element of for Mm travelling to whatever you were going to and you were in your carriage or whatever. You would have a nice heavy dress Mm -hmm. and then you'd have a quilt or throw over you. And then the beaded is obviously, I mean, that's a lot of man hours. Mm-hmm. So that's that, and so it's things like that. And I, I do want to do if I do a master's, it'll be related to fashion or clothing yeah. in some regard. One of the things I'm finding quite interesting with the costumes, the costume stuff, with the clothing, um, not so much the 90s as most of them appear to be handmade and hand decorated and might even have been made by the people who wore them or a local seamstress is that the dresses have labels inside them of who made them. Mm-hmm. Um, and quite a lot of the companies were actually local to Perth. Oh, wow. Uh, so there might be something in there about, you know, researching mm. clothiers in Perth. Um, I'm quite interested yeah. in, um, there is a ocelot fur coat that has made its way down the family, or oh, my sorry. family. It was my great grand's, and she got it from McEwen's in Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would have been probably the 1920s or 30s. Right. And it's currently in my grand's possession, but I called dibs not mm-hmm. to wear it, but just because it's a beautiful I fur think... coat. And apparently, McEwen's used to sell fur back yes, in the day. Yes, I remember actually, even in the 80s, possibly, mm-hmm. going into McEwen's and they had fur coats. It was the ultimate status. Yeah. Like that's one of the things we were talking about, I think it might have been just before you came in. Because um, we, Anna, had found the 
stole. Yeah. Oh yeah, we have a fox fur stole as yeah. well in the in um, the family. And you know, Hilda was talking a bit about her memories of a time where it was absolutely the status symbol if you yeah. had a real fur coat or a fur stole mm. or you know, it was you were someone if you yeah. had one of them. You've got a fox fur one at home somewhere. Mm. Um, and the mouth has got like a clip in it. Yeah. So you cross it yeah. and you clip mm. it. Has it got the glass eyes? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know where it is. It's, yeah. It'd be in mum and dad's house. But yeah, there's something like that, that you know, or it is, as you say, looking at somewhere like Clouds or some of the other factory. I mean, I know obviously Dundee was more jute and yes. outer, you know, but there are lots yeah. of historical. There's a really long history in Abernethy of um, clothing manufacture. Yeah. Yeah. All the flax and the linen, and mm-hmm. you know, the earlier you go back in the records, every other person was a weaver. Yes, and we discussed it previously. It would almost be quite cool to um, reproduce the linen as it would yeah. have been made yeah. at a certain period mm-hmm. here, yeah. or make an outfit from a similar type of product mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. would be available. And looking at the the hand dyeing, and as you say, the hand embroidering. Which is really cool. There's a, a weaver's workshop in Newborough. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be quite interesting to speak to them. Yeah. Um, about what they are doing and where they are sourcing their materials mm. and things from. I suspect it's probably wool. Um, I might be wrong. Mm. I don't know. Um, but we should, it's an investigation yes. for a road trip. Yes. Um, at some point. That's definitely on the list. And, and it means we can go to James Hill for Meringues on the way. Yes. Or on the way back. Yeah, we're, just, we're name dropping local businesses now. James Field have fabulous meringues. They do. They're they like do. the fabulous best and largest meringues. <laughs> I'm off. Just ignore me now for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> it's So McEwen's in Perth. Do we know how long they've been there? The I think. Or how long they were there. They were there. Um, no. A very long time doesn't really terribly no, help. It. It's so death. the architecture around the big picture windows mm-hmm. has got a kind of 1920s, 30s look about it. But I suspect probably they were there before that. Though, yeah, maybe a... because McEwen's, well, next door used to be the bank but became Lakeland and is now I'm not sure what. It's the vaccination centre. It's the vaccine. Yeah, it's currently. Yes. Yeah. Um, McEwen's is now bed shop. Mm. Um, but I'm sure there is a, I'm sure there's signage or there was signage on the front that had to date and I'm sure it's like 1870 oh, or 1860 yeah. or something. Um, but I would definitely look into that. And obviously they added the cook shop at the back and, mm. but the, the main building. Because they had a number of buildings on that block, didn't they? They pretty much own that whole street. Yeah. Mm. In one form. They still do. It's yeah, because I think they, they owned just, Austin yeah. Reed when it was yeah. the like they owned the building and leased it. And the building that was the posh shirt shop. Yes. And yeah. I think I might be totally wrong here. Were they not involved with it? Is it Miss Forsyth around the corner? Possibly. Mm. Or is that just something of? It's either that or someone worked in McEwen's and they went to Miss Forsyth or something. We're going very tangenty now, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, we're getting very tangential. But that's okay. Because some of this clothing, we might, you know, we could potentially take that back into McEwen's. 
Well, no, because it's shut now. No, we can take it back into the No. But what, I, what I'm... So when I'm talking about um, looking at the clothiers who were in Perth, mm-hmm. it might be that some of that was actually retail Stocked through McEwan. at McEwan's, yeah. Because I imagine that McEwan's was um, the store oh, yeah. in, in Perth. Um, I imagine that it was... I'm making all this up now. But, oh, ooh, here we go. Sorry, quickly Googling while mm-hmm. we're chatting. Um, McEwan's was established in 1868. Oh, it was only off by a few years. I just I could see the 186 in, the, yeah, in my mind. Yeah. Um, department store established in March 1868. Closed in 2016. So it would be very interesting, I think, to do... Yeah. Yeah. There's an option, you know, yeah. fashion and McEwan's Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, How McEwan's dressed yeah, the ladies of were. Perth. Because yeah. that would have been the high-end stuff. I mean, Oh, definitely. You know, normal working people were probably still making their own clothes. Well, even when we were kids, mm-hmm. I think McEwan's was... Yeah, you needed money to go there. Yeah. Or it certainly had that reputation and, and that aura of... And it was a place... Groups people dressed up to go yes. to you wouldn't just walk into McEwan's and G- I did because I don't care about such things but <laughs> it's yeah you, it, especially when they if they were going to the cafe restaurant up the stairs yeah. mm-hmm. you would it's, see the the ladies who lunch of a certain age they had a hairdresser salon did, up the yeah. stairs yeah. so they'd come straight out of the hairdresser into the restaurant meet their pals for a mm-hmm. long lunch in their finery then go to and the sales assistants knew exactly who you were, and you know they were they were really good. But I think it's it's I mean it's obviously not there anymore. And most department stores are now closing because people mm-hmm. don't shop that way mm-hmm. anymore. But it it was an institution. Yeah, absolutely, it was so. an institution. I still I've got a shirt that I bought in McEwan's in nineteen eighty seven. And it's it it looks it's like an oversized shirt, very eighties style, mm-hmm. um, and it looks like it's black lace overlaid on green, but actually it's a print. And so nineteen eighty seven was thirty six. Thirty yeah, thirty six. Thirty six years ago. Lies. That would make us old. <laughs> I still wear that shirt, and it, it's not threadbare. It's, but that was the other thing as well is that you would go to McEwen's if you wanted this stuff that would last. And my shirt is. Or if it was like if you were going to a wedding, or yeah. If you needed yes. a, a good yeah. quality, yeah. high class posh outfit to dazzle your yeah. relatives, you went to McEwen's. Yeah. I actually bought a few handbags out of McEwan's over the years. I don't ever remember buying anything, you know? I, have a, I might once have bought a dress in their sale for a school. I have a thing. fake fur leopard print handbag that was purchased out of McEwan's. Because they did dense bags. Anyway. Anyway. Back on topic. Very Yeah. But that's okay. But because... that's one of the, the good things about museums and, you know, you... You look at something and it sparks a memory and it sparks a story. It, it sparks and you, a conversation. You spoke earlier about the funding that we got last year for Scotland's Year of Stories. Mm-hmm. And we, we ran an event based around that very theory that yes. we had two or three objects set out 
and we encouraged people to, if they wanted to bring something with them that encapsulated their experience or their memories of living in Abernethy. And it was amazing some of the stories that, mm. that flowed from that, wasn't it? Folk were just, you know, they, we got them chatting and they chatted away and we, we learned yeah. loads of, you know, snippets of information and got some new things for our collections as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of informed how we've progressed with our community engagement and involvement mm. um, because it's not just about gathering information. It's almost about gathering people to yeah. us as well mm -hmm. and actually getting them involved and participating and seeing themselves represented mm. in what we have in the museum. Um, coming into museum and not seeing anything that you relate to doesn't make for a good experience. No, it does not. If someone can come in and see something that they can relate to or see, particularly in a little museum, mm -hmm. they want to see things that they can relate to, they want to see pictures of themselves, they want to see pictures of their relatives, they want to see something that's familiar and that's what I think brings people back and makes them want to come to the museum more mm -hmm. than once, mm -hmm. which is really good. Definitely. So Anna and I, as usual, have been digging about in archives because it's, it's what we do. It's a tough life. A tough life. It's just off the streets. Yeah. It does, it does. Off the streets and in Culture Perth and Caross's uh, archive section a lot of the time. Mm. If you haven't been, you should go. It's yeah. great. Culture Perth and Caross's archive is a fantastic wealth of oh, ancient dusty documents <laughs> that tell the history of Perth. Mm -hmm. um, you'll be surprised what's in there. In fact, I think they'd be surprised yes. at what's in there. It's almost impossible to know uh -huh. because the things that everyone has, everyone goes in with a different, a different subject in mind. Um, Anna's primarily still is the Sorry. management of Jobbies. waste. Let's just call a spade a spade. It's jobbies. It is. It is. Jo it is but you're never not funny. So, it is you know. jobbies. Jobbies are always funny. Jobbies are always funny. Um, so have you got any interesting poo-related stories for this week? Because I know you've been in the archive because I was I, in there I with you. I been in the archive. No, nothing fully developed. Actually, the, mm -hmm. the interesting poo-related story this week is not from our fully own developed archive. Poo. <laughs> so, yeah. Still brewing. More of a soft poo. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, you started me off now. Um, no, we found, when we were digging about up the stairs, we found um, a whole pile of 18th, 19th century receipts, which were cess fuse, mm. which is basically what um, the amount of money that property occupiers, why are you looking at that, paid to the landowner or the councillor, whoever it was, I've not gone through them all fully yet, to get their cesspits emptied. Is Abernethy on public sewage now? Yes. Yeah. It has been since the 1930s. Oh, right. So I live in Aberargy and we all still have septic tanks. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. You don't have an open cesspit in your back garden, though. No. No. So, you know, small mercies. But I think probably my septic tank is was built about a hundred years ago. 
I believe it's brick. Um, I think it didn't have a public water supply until the 1940s. It's um, it's it's that that is the one interesting thing that I'm still looking at in the the archive in Perth, in terms of water supply development in the very early 20th century, like pre First World War. Mm. Um, they took a decision because Abernethy was starting to expand beyond the traditional borough boundary. Yeah. And as it started to expand, um, if people wanted to be connected to the water supply, they had to pay a slightly higher rate than people within the borough boundary, mm-hmm. which is fair enough. Further to travel, etc. Et uh, yeah, so more pipes to, to lay yep. and etc. etc. But round about, I think it was 1905, um, They'd had such a, a rash of people wanting access, but also significant problems in being able to provide because, you know, the, the village had expanded so much that they took the decision that no one outside the borough boundary would be added to the public water supply. Oh, wow. So people then, if you built a new house and it was outside the boundary line, you had to get a well dug, you were responsible for your own water supply. Um, it wasn't until much later that it... You know, when obviously the various developments and improvements were carried out, that people were able to be connected up. And in the last episode, you were talking about um, you were trying to pin down a location. Yes. Have you? No. No. Still working on that. <laughs> so what's causing a bit of a problem is in the various sets of town council minutes, the same burn has three different names used interchangeably. Wow. Depending on who is Who's doing talking about it, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, it's like, well, which bit are we talking about? Say, which which part of the village is it at? It, do you know, yeah. But it's very very confusing. So, I put that one to rest for a little while because it was bursting my brain. There was burns. Some of the stuff that Alan and I were looking at this morning, there were burns um, mentioned to some of the boundaries. Mm. Um, but these are 17th century um, documents. Well, the, the Nethy <coughs> is referred to sometimes as the Nethy Burn, mm-hmm. sometimes as the East Burn, and sometimes a bit further down I'd as the Gordon Burn. to look like East. Yeah, that'd be the, it's probably the Nethy then. Because mm-hmm. as it goes down and rent under the, well, cuts across the railway line, mm-hmm. um, underneath it, obviously, it, it gets referred to as the Gordon Burn because it's down that way. It's bizarre. So get, the name seems to change that goes under the railway? I, I think the name changes depending on whichever councillor is talking where they live in the village. So I think mm. if they live down by Cordon, they it's think about the Cordon Burn. Mm-hmm. You know, depending on where on the mm. Nethy slash East Burn they live, they think, or if they live in the other end of the village, then we think, well, that's the East End, the Burn at the East End. Yeah. I think it's still a lot to do with where the person describing it lives in relation to the That's really confusing. Yes. Yeah. Welcome yeah. to my world. Great for researching. <laughs> <laughs> so, and this might be where, although it's not kind of directly relevant to what you're doing, but some of the documents that we were looking at this morning are um, 17th century seasons mm. um, and various to do with other land grants and things. And a lot of those are meant, you know, they mention so-and-so's land or this barn or, you know, Jeffrey's boundary with the east field of mm-hmm. Westland, you know, the sort yeah. of confusing stuff it gets. I, I wonder how those features are referred to in those. Mm. Um, I, I think that's a future rabbit hole, to be honest. Because yeah. 
at some point I need to, obviously once I've got a wee bit further into the minutes, I need to sit and try and marry it up to a map of the time and mm-hmm. figure out exactly where the different places are. But yeah, the the, the way that it, it comes across, it really does feel like it, what, how you refer to that burn depends on where in the village you live and what you're used to hearing at all. Well, yeah, and I would also say there's an element of, and we know this in today's life, mm. is how long you've lived somewhere for. Yes. Because, for example, a restaurant or a pub or a house will change its name. Nine times out of ten, the people who knew it as the previous name will probably still refer to it as the previous name. I grew up with a pub in Ochterarder that was called the Morvan. It's now the Glendevin. I don't call it the Glendevin. I still call it the Morvan. It's not been the Morvan yeah. for 20-odd years. My partner always laughs. My family... Because we still refer to the factory in Newburgh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is actually the linoleum factory, which yes. was at the bottom of York Place down on the, the waterfront. And now it's actually just a big open space of grass. Mm. And Ken's like, how does anyone know where you're talking where about? Where you're talking about? I mean, there was a giant factory down there. Mm. So anyone who has any sort of history with Newburgh knows that that was the factory. But again, Abernethy was the same. So closed factory for people who've lived here within a certain time span. Didn't exist. Well, but if you say the factory, people know. Mm -hmm. Where you mean? If you're in Abernethy and you talk about the factory, the factory refers to what was closed factory. But if you're in Newburgh, it refers to the lino factory. It refers to the lino factory. So someone's got to know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but a lot of these documents were local documents for local people. Very much so. And the local people knew the points of reference. But again, there's the variation even amongst the locals. Yeah. Because you've got the East Burn the Cordon Burn, the Nethy yeah. Burn, for yeah, the same so stretch of what? the Burn It's a completely different burn. Right. It is a different burn. So it is always a different burn? It's always a different burn. It's the one down by the old corner shop. Oh, okay. That's the Ballow Burn. That's the Nethy is the one that runs down back of Cargwine. Ah, okay. And it goes all under the street and down and under the other. Yeah. Well, because uh, it runs down along the side of the Cordon Road at one point. Okay. So this is me even just coming from Abaragi, just along the road. Went to primary school here. Went to primary school here. Um, doesn't actually quite know the points of reference in Abernethy. Mm-hmm. Wasn't there some of them I don't know. Um, yeah. I think, again, they call different things different names and sometimes I'm reading through these minutes and I think, what's that? Where is that? Never heard of it. Mm. What are they talking about? So... We've got documents upstairs for Cumley Bank. I'm not sure Cumley Bank is a house in Abernethy, but I might be completely wrong. Cumley Bank is... There's a Cumley Bank in Edinburgh. I was going to say it's part of Edinburgh. There's a Cumley Bank in Perth. Mm -hmm. So, what do these documents refer to? I need to try and find if there's a Cumley Bank. And it almost, you need to then put yourself in the mindset of the person who created the document. Like, what would they be aware of? Would they be aware of Perth? Would they be aware of Edinburgh? Would they be... 
And was it a popular name for something at the time because of a wider mm. cultural event or experience? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was there a famous a Cumley Bank? Seems to be a bit up my own bum, that, doesn't it? I mean, the discussion we were having was that Cumley Bank is just something that looks nice. Mm. You know, it, it it's... It's not like a bastardised old Scots or anything well, like that. Well, we also had that as well. Um, and I think in one of the documents it seems to be spelt slightly differently. Mm. Um, so this, I mean, you know, this is one of the reasons that I dragged Alan along here this morning. <laughs> um, was because he's got more experience of these 17th century documents than we do. Mm. And he's really kindly agreed to kind of come and do like a wee summary of each one, um, which will be fabulous. Mm. Because we've got an art, you know, we've got our own archive of documents up there that at the moment are physically inaccessible to people other than us. Mm -hmm. Um, We can't make them, we can't even make them into a proper searchable catalogue at the moment because we don't know what's in them. we're starting. We're starting to to actually give them all names, you know, but give them reference yeah. numbers and do a summary. Are you digitising? Um, it's all on an Excel spreadsheet at the moment, but at some point in the future, yeah. I mean, as in scans of the actual documents or not photographs not yet, or yeah. Um, we will. Everything is a long term project, yeah. and there are so many long term projects. Mm-hmm. The, and some uh, of the, the older documents as well, the ink is now so faded well, that they're thing. not yeah, going to yeah. scan or photograph no. terribly well. You know, you're peering at it as mm-hmm. it is under But no there, There's documents up there that I'm certainly going to be using in my research that um, I've, I've scanned. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll use some of those. But even using them in my own research is kind of stopped by... Not stopped, it's not stopped. I need to properly catalogue those mm-hmm. and give them reference numbers because I can't even reference them in my own work. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there needs to, you know, I, I actually need to do a little bit of cataloguing work before I can even reference them properly. Yeah, in your in work. work. Yeah. There's, there's, and I, you know, I think other small community museums probably have the same problem. There are just so many things that need to be done. Do you know what one of my favourite geeky pastimes is? Mm. And you got me to do it last year. Is I love transcribing these things. Mm. And I was off work for a period last year. I know, I know. But it is, it's it's my weird geeky thing. Because last year when I was off and you sent me, I think it was... was, Small stories. Yeah. Yeah. That was two years ago. And I just sat, you know, with my laptop and flicked between the document and the word document and guessing the handwriting. And it's a weird, weird thing that I just randomly enjoy. I actually really enjoy it as well. If I've got, like, the... So a lot of my research is based around the rental book of Colfargy. And, you know, it's a 1770s document. And it's all handwritten. Um, but I've transcribed the whole thing, 22 agreements and various other bits and pieces that are in it. And I took to doing a little bit of it every morning. Mm-hmm. So, you know, get up in the morning, get breakfast, sit in front of the computer, two screens, 
image on one screen, document on the other screen. And it just got me into the day. It got me into the headspace of my research. Yeah. And it, um, it, I think it was really useful. Yeah, and it kind of engages your brain because you have to focus to, to understand the handwriting mm -hmm. or to put it in a context or something like that as yeah. well. So, no, it's, it's, it is my random geekiness. That's mine. Well, there's an awful lot of stuff that could do with being transcribed. An awful lot of stuff. So you will never be short That's fine. Of, of work. So one of the things um, I've been looking at this week, and this comes down to some of the stuff that we, some of the documents that we have upstairs um, in our own collection. Um, so my research looks at the estate of Kofargi, which was owned in the middle of the 18th century by Alexander McCreef and his descendants. Alexander McCreef was one of the fathers of the secessionist movement in Scotland, and he was a local landowner. So at the point of the secession, Alexander McCreef was also the minister in Abernethy. And as he wasn't officially deposed until 1740, and the secession happened in 1733, he basically just assumed command mm. of the, the parish church. So it went from being a regular church of Scotland into being a secessionist church. And I've been, I've been looking at um, records from the 1700s uh, that relate to that. And one of the things that we have upstairs in our uh, archive collection is an extract of the contents of a collection of um, church accoutrements, mm. accoutrements, mm. I can speak French, um, that the established church, when it was re-established in 1748, so they were without a minister in Aberne, like a, mm -hmm. without a Church of Scotland minister from 1740 until 17, end of 1747, when the new minister came in uh -huh. and the new Kirk session was established. What were we going to say, Katie? I thought, because last time, were we not speaking about how, but to do with the land more so than to mm -hmm. do with the objects, like the Church of Scotland owned the house that the minister was staying in and then he... There was somebody, um, so one of the secession congregation members was the leaseholder in the, the established church. churches. Yes, that's what we were speaking about last time. So we're this is about Kirkland's. Yes, and this yeah. is now. So this was in this was in. Um, so these in would be Church of Scotland objects. So these objects technically belong to. Abernethy Church, Abernethy Kirk Session, Perth Presbytery. Um, and we've actually got a list of um, what what they had. Which is not like as flash as some other denomination stuff, is it? No, it really isn't. It really is not particularly um, exciting. But basically what they did was they... they they took, um, they took the poor box, and not in a bad way. They didn't steal the poor box. They were now the parish church. 
even though the you know the secessionists were the parish mm. were the congregation so they took over all of the functions that the normal or the church, established church of scotland would have um but the, you know the, here's kind of a an idea of um what the church the established church got back they actually had to go to the sheriff in perth to demand you know to mm. actually get this this stuff back wow. and there are various bills um various bills bits and pieces um taka kirklands um there is the stamp for making the communion tokens and a whole big pile of communion tokens in two leather bags there is 62 pounds of money in one purse 72 pounds in wow. another 58 pounds in another 60 in another and 12 pounds and 10 pence 12 12 pounds 16 shillings and 10 pence and that would be a pounds. fair chunk of change this back is then this is quite a lot of money yeah, it's a yeah. lot of money. This you is can see why the established church was a bit naffed off because this is yeah <laughs> you can kind of see why they wanted it back the mort cloths there's two old mort cloths um some shreds of an old velvet mort cloth so these would be lent out to mm. the parishioners for a fee to to cover um cleaning cover bodies <laughs> yeah <laughs> cleaning fees um two silver cups and the funny thing about the silver cups is that they were actually donated to the established kirk session by alexander Moncrief's great uncle mm. and his father because they were historically ministers yeah. or historically landowners and or ministers in the parish. So that took us all back. And then there's tablecloths, three tin plates, um, tablecloths for baptism, keys, locks, wow. keys for the church and a big chest that all of the stuff was in. Now, the documents that we've got upstairs that have come they're all church related and they're yeah. all late seventy, uh, late 18th, early 19th century. I'm almost convinced that we actually have the poor box upstairs. Wow, really? Yeah. The the box that all of this stuff's in, um, it has two locks, mm -hmm. um, one of which has been broken, one of which is still locked, mm. but has been broken into. Right. The other one is unlocked and has obviously been open. The box is very, very well-made solid oak all of the fittings all the uh the locks the hinges everything are all handmade wow and i'm fairly sure that this is going to be one of these boxes that's talked about but that's yeah so are you now going to have a look at court records or see if there's sheriff's so records anywhere there are in the kirk session records which are actually online mm -hmm. um this back and forward is mentioned and I think that's what I was talking about the last time. Mm -hmm. So I'm discovering that it was still one of the secessionist um, congregation who were in the established church's property. Um, one of the interesting things I find out that I still have to get to the bottom of, that as one of the main heritors in the area, mm -hmm. although they were secessionists, members of the Associate Presbytery, they still had an obligation to the established church. In what way? 
in paying the minister's wages, in um, maintaining buildings belonging to the church. So in the 1760s, when it was Matthew who was the minister for the associate presbytery, he is actually, there's a list of people, so I think they'd, done a, they'd looked at the, um, the parish church, which is not the one that's there now. They looked at the parish church and decided there were certain repairs needed. So we've got a list of the heritors and how much of this proportion of payment, mm. of proportion of repair costs each should pay. And Matthew's still on it. Mm. Would he have paid it? <laughs> I don't think he would have had much choice. Although, again, late in the, in the, 17, in the 1770s, again... They're actually looking to replace the manse in Abernethy. Mm -hmm. So there's a similar list of years. Um, and it has the proportion that each header has to pay. And of course, I'm sure at some point they went, oh, right, yeah, 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 we'll pay it. But we also find, and this is all in our material upstairs, that there were actually letters of horning sent out for all the heritors who hadn't actually paid their dues. So letters of Hornet is basically like debt collection. It's debt collection, yeah. When you say that the established church had to go to the sheriff or go to the court mm -hmm. system to get their stuff back, would that have actually been the sheriff in Perth or would that have been the local magistrates? It was the sheriff in Perth. The sheriff in Perth. Wow. Yeah, they are, if you, in the Kirk Session records for, I think it's middle of 1748, you see a kind of back and forth mm. um, a little bit with the Sheriff of Perth. Uh, and eventually they rule in favour of the established church. And this list that we have upstairs, which I think is an extract from the Kirk Session records, mm -hmm. uh, is, is what was handed back right. to the established church session. From the secessionist. From the secessionist or from the associate presbytery. Anti-burger session. Because the burger-anti-burger -burger split happened in 1747. So it was all... Have here, oh. <laughs> I know, I was going to say, there was like 10 people and they all yeah. Yeah. had yeah. different yeah. religions. It's, you know, it's, you know, <laughs> it's a grand tradition that continues today. We could probably all fake with our own shadows if we, <laughs> we could any fun. <laughs> it's your heritage, damn it. It is. Yeah, it's incredibly interesting. It is, and it's... I think a lot of a lot of this would have, you know, people had work and they had the church. You know, mm. the church was their social and uh -huh. yeah. their social and moral life came from the church. Uh -huh. I mean, their 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 entire lives really were mm. were ruled and by their education. That's where yeah. you were seen by your neighbours and people would judge you and you know. And so I would imagine that this. This incident in Abernethy is probably emblematic of things that were going on yeah. around the country yeah. in different in, in communities. It's too small to have had separate sort of buildings. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, all of the so I think Ebenezer Erskine. So he was the the he was the initial leader of the, the secession or this secession in Scotland. Is often referred to as the first secession, the second one's when the free church was established a good bit later. Um, he at one point was using the um, church in Stirling in his parish. They were having 
ghost. The ghost of microphones past. They had one service in one end of the church and then a different service in the other end of the church. Wow. Until I think eventually Ebenezer Erskine was thrown out of that church in about 1739. Um, but... The characters of the men is are, is quite interesting. I think a lot of because Alexander McCreef was kind of already embedded in this community. Mm-hmm. And while he was, you know, very stoic in his adherence to the doctrine of the, you know, the church, and that's one of the reasons, you know, that was another reason for the secession, he was very, he was more... He had a better relationship, I think. Uh-huh. You know, a, a much more kindly relationship. Because he'd also probably have built up a history as a landowner and as yeah. a estate owner. Yeah. Yeah. And they would maybe go, well, you know, he pays all right, or he, you know, yeah, he's good to yeah. the people who work for him. One, or... so one we'll always get a chicken at Christmas. Yeah. yeah. We'll always get a chicken, although they have to give him lots of chickens. Um, yeah, one of the things I'm looking at is how that relationship is formed and how you know when he's he's their minister he's also their landowner and you know he takes them away from the established church and they follow him yeah and while you know someone like Ebenezer Erskine I think who's the person that's most written about in the secession period he was the the figurehead he was this kind of a real big character mm-hmm. and when he moved uh, to Stirling, some of his congregation from, I think it was Port Moak he was at, at Kinross, some of the, you know, he, he was such a, a followed figure that some of his parishioners actually moved from Almost Port Almost cult-like. Yes. I don't want to call it a cult. I'm not trying to no, call but, it a cult, but I'm saying he has that kind of devotional following. Yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the ministers at that time had, there was a real force of personality. Um... In, in the same way, kind of almost that in our times, you know, people will follow different celebrities. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, they're great. And mm-hmm. yeah. there, there wasn't that kind of celebrity then. No. The ministers were kind of rated on the, yeah. the vehemence of their sermons mm-hmm. and whether they were a firebrand and yeah. did they terrorise the company. Yeah. You know, it was but also how the good they were when my mum was dying and, you yeah. know, and was they, it not considered a great a great compliment to a family if the minister came for tea or mm-hmm. you know everything came round and yeah it, that is yeah you're right that was the the celebrity of the day yeah. because everyone else was so remote mm-hmm. and there wasn't telly you know there no. no there wasn't really anything else to do in your spare time but but be it that's a sweeping general fornicate and go to the min- and uh, go to church exactly mm-hmm. but they actually saw it. They, they they had big families mm. and they actually saw it as you know that 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 was to the grace of god mm-hmm. having you know populating your mm. congregation mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i, I don't think you know there was like, like, too far down that road and you know i don't think there was extramarital fornication or you know i don't think that was they weren't trying to populate 
entirely no, themselves. Yeah. But they, they saw it as quite a duty to actually mm -hmm. have large mm -hmm. families. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously the mortality rate was quite high at that mm -hmm. point as well. But um, yeah, you know, they, they, they were out amongst people. Certainly yeah. Alexander Moncrief was. Mm -hmm. From what I'm seeing, Alexander Moncrief was out amongst the people in Abernethy. He wasn't, he was the landowner, um, but he wasn't apart from them. No. He was of God, but not God. Yeah. Yeah. No, a tyrannical figure that we're no. getting his rent in time. No. Getting his tithing. Or... I think he had, you know, he, he had the way that he operated, but I think he wasn't a monster. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think people did relate to him. Um, and followed him so much yeah. so that they'd not throw away, but they'd turn their backs on an entire established yeah part of the Christian religion mm -hmm. to go to another one yeah. for him with him. Initially, the associate presbytery, by the name, didn't see themselves as outside the Scottish Church. Mm -hmm. They saw themselves as a sect of the Scottish Church. Mm -hmm. Um, until they eventually were all deposed. Um, but certainly initially they just saw themselves as a conservative sect of, mm -hmm. you know, the established church. Which is why I think, you know, they were quite happily just to, to assume command of the trappings yeah. of the church and just carry on. It's, it's almost like a kind of 18th century version of the Monty Python sketch of very <laughs> popular people's front of Judea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Many, yeah. many splitters. Everywhere. Yeah. I think that's how the majority of new sects of religions are formed, is two yeah. people have a fallout and they yeah, start a new... There's, I've, you know, I've been looking at various other sects um, in Scotland and there's there's a couple of interesting ones. Mm -hmm. uh, one involving um, a, a female... Uh, Miss Buchan, whose body and she died, and her body ended up buried under the hearthstone of one of her followers, because they always thought that she was going to rise again. But that's a story for another. I was going to say it's not creepy at all. No, it's not. Not creepy at all. Not very interesting. Indeed. Um. So yeah, uh, that's been our third episode. I think it's time we all went and got some lunch or just had a nap or something, maybe. Yeah, Can we just quickly cool. mention before oh, we oh, go? Oh my goodness! Next yeah. Saturday, yeah, your favourite small museum will be participating in the local Christmas fair that's run by the Silver Linings Here Studio in School Wind in Abernethy. It's on from three till seven, and there's lots of talented local crafters and things going to be selling their wares there, and also us. What are what is the museum offering? Lots of lovely things. We'll have our t-shirts, we'll have mugs, we'll have key rings, um, lots of, of surprises for Christmas. Yeah. It'll be great. Do your Christmas shopping with yeah. Liam and Yeah, and having the three of us been to a Christmas fair recently, yeah, on an outing, library last week. we can say... To get some blooming good things oh, at yeah. local local can. fairs, yeah, weird Stuff and wonderful, really and shops. yeah, and unusual and yeah. things you never knew you needed. Yes, like a, a yarn bowl. Yes, we won't have any of those, sadly, but <laughs> many other treasures. So do come along and join us if you're in the area. And thank you for joining us. Wonder you're joining us. 